Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Puget Sound, and uh, perhaps gobble, gobble. Hey, it is Thanksgiving week. Uh, looking forward to family and friends and festive times. Of course, good food and and perhaps uh, giving thanks for all that uh, you're you're bounded or um, bestowed with. And of course, sharing. This is the season for sharing. And if, and uh, as we move closer to uh, some of those gift give the gift giving holiday season, uh, giving the gift of wine is really one of the best things uh, you can share with somebody because in turn you they share it back with you. So it's kind of a win win. In fact, they get to do all the studying, and they can uh, cut to the chase and give you the, uh, the Cliff's Notes, if you will. But if you are really into wine, you probably have collected some books, you're doing some research, and then you might see some of those really large tomes, the ones that look like, ooh, that's got a lot of stuff going on, cool photos. And I happen to have um, one of the all-time wine heroes in my book, uh, Jancis Robinson. And she is the author of several different editions of the World Atlas of Wine and a couple other books. And she's online today. She's here touring for the book on the West Coast, and uh, she's here on Saturday night. Miss Jancis Robinson, hey, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. Thank you very much. Oh, it is my pleasure. Uh, I guess, and I was uh, telling listeners a couple weeks ago that I was in San Francisco for a great tasting. It was nice and sunny down there. Boy, this is chain this global warming stuff. It's not so bad when you live in the wet, cold Pacific Northwest. But <laughs> on another note, let's talk about you. You've been in the wine business actually as a professional for forty plus Since years. The December the first, nineteen seventy-five. Nineteen seventy, a day that live in infamy. Infamy, no, for me. <laughs> right? <laughs> You've got it. Well, that's amazing. Um, I'd love to talk about um, your first wine experience. When did you really, like, everyone has one, I think. When we talk about beverages, oh, I remember my first beer. I kind of remember my first shot. Actually, I do, because it was one of many that got me sick. But um, tell me about your first wine experience that that made you go, aha, or oh my. Sure. Uh, It was when I was a student at Oxford, and I had a bottle of, I shared a bottle of an amazing wine, which you couldn't, I couldn't possibly afford nowadays, called uh, Chambon Musigny Les Amoureuses, 1959. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it was so much better than student plonk. And I did realize that while it was uh, at the source of amazing pleasure, there was probably a heck of a lot of interesting stuff behind it, like history and geography and all the rest. So I I didn't get up from the table saying, right, I'll be a wine writer then, because at that stage, certainly in Britain, the subjects of wine and food, believe it or not, uh, were thought of as being completely frivolous. And if I'd said to my (laughs) friends, I'm going to work in wine or food, They'd have, they'd have said, what a waste of a good education. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> but it's incredible to think of it now, isn't it? But, um, for instance, you know, our son went to Oxford. Now he's a restaurateur, and everyone thinks that's incredibly cool and so forth. But um, I then eventually spent um, a year, I sort of dropped out to, the, to Provence in France. And there, of course, I was surrounded by people for whom eating and drinking is what life is all about. So as soon as I got back to London, I, w- I was determined to find a job in either wine or food at that stage. 
and got a really lucky break as assistant editor of a wine trade magazine. Wow. Which was great because the circulation was tiny, so I could make all sorts of mistakes and hardly anybody noticed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so fun. Well, it's great. How, how about that? I think uh, for many uh, people, wine aficionados or wine uh, enthusiasts, um, a red burgundy or white burgundy can be transcendental. I know that's Absolutely. some of the most ethereal. Uh, and extremely expensive nowadays. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the old capitalism, right? Supply and demand, I think that's kind of a, a standard in the business. Uh, when I think about, were you studying journalism or were you studying, what were you studying in Oxford? I was studying, believe it or not, math and philosophy. And the only time it's really been relevant and useful in my wine career is that the bridge between those two subjects is logic. And uh, I, I was commissioned in the, well, was the late 80s to come up. The Oxford University Press has a series of books called The Oxford Companion to something. Started off with English literature, then they had art, music, blah, blah. And they wanted one to wine and asked me to do it. So I had to sort of divide the massive, complex subject of wine into lots and lots of little alphabetically listed topics you know right. uh, and I, I needed quite a logical brain i think to do that well it's this now is in its fourth edition actually <laughs> your brain the oxford companion to why yes i have it uh it's it's super cool to have an a to z or a thesaurus if you will or a, a resource that that really has um uh, well thoughtful tidbits on all everything from a to z which is really cool i'm wondering um this is before computers, so there must have been some serious... Oh, yes, I mean, my fir the first edition came out in 1994, and there are a hundred, well, one or two hundred contributors from, you know, ah, right. and all that kind of thing. And in that era, everything came in on sort of tatty bits of paper. It was an absolute nightmare. You can imagine how much easier it is nowadays. Well, maybe that would have been the Dewey Decimal System. Everything's on a little note card, and you've got all these these, these master drawers. Well, I somehow had to edit it and get it onto what what were, I think, initially in the first edition, eight hundred pages with two columns on each. I mean, completely potty. Oh my! About a million million word book. Oh my what goodness! It is, what, what I'm pleased about is that at least it it covers a lot of. The science of wine. And when I was doing my Master of Wine exam in the early 80s, there was practically nothing in English you could read about those subjects. You know, uh -huh. I was having to buy French textbooks about winemaking and understanding about a fifth of them. If sure. that. <laughs> I'm certain. Uh, well, the Oxford's Companion to Wine is really a great alphabetical reference. Um, when I think about uh, referencing thing. Tell me about your reference in the wine, the England wine community and or the wine culture there. Is is wine an everyday thing in England? Because we think about oh, beer. Oh, very much so now. Not when I was growing up. It was really bizarre. If you mentioned the word wine, you had to sort of put audible quotation marks around it and sort of call <laughs> it wine, you know. But now it's it features without any comment in the most popular sitcoms, um, it is the Brits' favourite alcoholic drink, and it, London, I have to say, where I live, is the most fantastic place for tasting wine. It's got really? a very, very vibrant wine trade, right from sort of bottom to top in terms of quality, and all over the world, because, of course, until recently, Britain didn't hardly produce wine, so we had to import everything. So I could go, 
to about four really interesting wine tastings a day if I had the time. Wow. Holy smokes! Well, that's a great that's a great opportunity, and uh, what a great connect connection uh, me- mechanism to find friends and to share stories and perhaps have some new companions. Of course, taste some great well, wines. Well, it is. And I, when I first went to professional wine tastings, I used to treat them like a social occasion, you know, and have a good old gossip. Now that I've well, in two thousand, I started JancisRobinson.com. Yes, and I was loving it so much, but I didn't want to take ads or sponsorship. So I reckoned I ought to, I'd have to do a sort of subscri- you know, members thing. Correct. And we started a membership side of it in 2001. And it's been such a success that I, I now, because I accept money for people, I feel I've got to spend every minute of these tastings very solemnly taking notes and all that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm a real, real party pooper at them nowadays. <laughs> what do they say? <laughs> um, heavy lies the crown, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Very good. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, well, let's talk about um, you know how you approach wine. I mean, it, do you have do you still find time for pleasure? I mean, I. Oh yes. Oh yes. I, I see. There's a massive difference between tasting and drinking wine, uh-huh. and tasting is what I do during the day, and trying to minimise the amount of alcohol that touches my system and spit everything out. But it doesn't, in any sense, and I'm sure you're the same doesn't diminish the pleasure that I get from drinking wine every evening. True. Yeah, and it's great to taste when you find a wine that you're actually making notes for or reviewing or just, just having a new, a new bottle, and you find that, um, that wonderful moment of that mmm factor. Hey, this is hitting. Yeah. Uh, well, everything. I always say the best tasting note is just mmm. <laughs> uh, but it's lovely making new discoveries. I, I really like that. And I, I do tend to, I'm very curious, so I slightly favor the underdog and the new region and all that kind of thing. Yes, uh, we all do. I think that's the, the from the David and Goliath, and which is interesting because there's a lot of delay, David and Goliath going on now with the consolidation and, of course, uh, um, just the, the direct-to-consumer versus supermarkets and, and how the wine channels have expanded but also contracted to some degree in each of those channels. How is most wine purchased in England? The great majority in terms of volume is pretty cheap stuff from supermarkets. In fact, you wouldn't believe the average price paid per bottle. I think, though, that the statistics are coming from the supermarkets and they're completely discounting the fine wine trade because that's very active in Britain, too. But in the supermarkets, the average price paid in a country where we have pretty high duties on wine. So uh, uh, we have to pay well over two pounds just to for the bottle and the and the tax and all that kind of thing uh the average price is is under six pounds a bottle which is what about eight dollars right yeah but but that's not very interesting wine really and in fact the quality has been going down as the supermarkets have got more and more penny pinching and the taxes have been going up and interesting competitive and everything but a much sort of happier um feature of of wine in Britain is that uh, there are masses and masses of independent retailers, whether they have 10 nowadays not to have stores, but uh, a lot of online selling. And we don't have any restrictions on shipping wine from one place to another, thank the Lord. So it's, it's a very vibrant wine scene, really. Although I do admire American importers, I sometimes think they work slightly harder than their British counterparts at sniffing out the new stuff. 
Sure. Uh, there, we got to find a niche uh, when you're uh, one of 30. We have like 35 different distributors here, wholesalers in the Seattle area. Uh, we're going to take a break here in a few moments, but I, I also wanted to ask about when um, the food scene in England. And has the wine, I mean, the wine has typically remained the same from the high-end perspective, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Rioja, uh, Piedmont, etc. But tell me about how food has evolved in, in England for as a match to wine. Massively. I mean, it, it's it's so out of date, that um, stereotype, you know, that you can't <laughs> eat well in Britain. <laughs> like it's rainy in and Seattle, same thing, we get it. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know, I associate Seattle with eating well, actually. But, <laughs> you know, we have a very, very multicultural, extremely multicultural society. So we have so many different cuisines and then lots of new stuff, uh, new techniques, new ingredients and all the rest. So it, it's a great place to eat. And in fact, um, we used to have a, ti- a tiny little flat in Paris. And yes. the pleasure of going to France is, was no longer eating because it's, it's really quite boring in France. They're all um, kind of the same, aren't they? All those they got. Yeah. Is, yeah. They are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they think that, um, you know, they're being very, very adventurous if they put a little pinch of curry powder in a sauce kind of thing. <laughs> uh, very unlike the whole fusion and, right. all, you know, we've got uh, so many. Indian was was really, really popular decades ago. Of but course. that's just one of the many cuisines we've got now. Well, this is it's so fun to see actually uh, the world of food expanding in almost every culture, culture whether it be country, city, state, etc. Hey, folks, I'm speaking with Jancis Robinson, who is one of the foremost authorities in the world uh, when it comes to wine, and she's uh, author of several different books. Uh, and we are today talking about the eighth edition of the World Atlas of Wine, which is available. Jancis, where is this book available? I'm sure there's a big company here located in Seattle. We could find it. I'm afraid so. <laughs> no, you, you certainly can order it online. Uh, there is a, a website, um, worldatlasofwine.com, which has links to where you can buy it. Okay, worldatlasofwine.com. And you, again, said you had a, um, a service where you provide some tasting notes for different wines, and that's under your personal website? Oh, gosh, yes. It's been going since 2000. We've got members in 100 countries. In fact, about quarter of them are in the United States, jancisrobinson.com. Fantastic. Hey, folks, we're going to take a little break and come back and chat more with the amazing uh, Jancis Robinson here on Happy Hour Radio. He's loud. He's proud. Holding nothing back. Michael Savage. The Savage Nation. Weeknights 9 to 11. Talk Radio 570 KVI. Now more KVI Want to Know Weekends. Back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for round two. And uh, it's uh, Christmas has come early for me. I have got one of the best gifts of gab I could ever imagine. And that is my special guest, Jancis Robinson, who is on the phone uh, here on the West Coast supporting a brand new edition of the World Atlas of Wine. Uh, I actually have the uh, fifth and sixth editions in my uh, cabinet. And then now it's great to have an update. And we're going to talk about that a little later. But Jancis, uh, you're based in England. Tell me about the England wine industries versus says, uh, you guys are growing great champagne, the White Cliffs of Dover. <laughs> yes, we're very uh, lucky to be one of the beneficiaries, actually, of climate change. Not that I'm, I'm advocating 
you know, m- more and more carbon emissions. But it's true, and I found this particularly when assembling the new eighth edition of the World Atlas of Wine, that there are a whole slew of wine-producing regions and countries in the north of the Northern Hemisphere that are now able to ripen grapes when they used not to be able to. And one of those is England. So when I started out writing about wine, England was growing a few was a few of those nasty German grapes bred specially to uh, get up high sugar levels and not much flavor, you know what I mean? Sure. Um, but in the last few years, we've been shown that we can make a very fair copy of champagne, as you say. Uh, it was actually an American couple who showed us. They took over an estate in Sussex, a really pretty little estate centered on a house where Henry VIII uh, lodged one of his <laughs> wives. Uh, very, very pretty. And they, took, they planted the Pinot Noir and uh, Chardonnay as grown in champagne and used expertise from a champagne winemaker mm-hmm. uh, called Nightimber this, and um, just showed us that you could actually make a very fair copy in England. And now we've got hundreds of wine producers, some of them really very professional and, um, and doing a great job. And actually the current winemakers at Nightimber are Canadian, actually. And they, they came to the job because they'd seen a picture of the the house of Henry VIII's wife, which looked so pretty, in the fifth edition of The World Atlas of Wine, which you mentioned earlier. And that that inspired them to ring the owner, call the, wow. the owner of Nightimber and volunteer themselves for the job. They've done a great job, too. Holy smokes. What? That's a great story. How about that? The uh, It's uh, Six Degrees of Jancis Robinson, perhaps. <laughs> um, so she was made, it's a, it's a married couple, and she was made... Um, Wine, sparkling winemaker of the year this year when it, the title had never gone to anyone outside Champagne. Oh my goodness! What what a thrill! That's quite an honor, mm. and uh, I'm sure the envy. Uh, the, I'm sure that's got some of the French looking over there for some land. Well, in fact, some of the a couple of the Champagne houses have already invested directly in the English sparkling wine business. Wow. Yeah, who would have thought that at one point, huh? Yeah. No one could see that in the future. Or maybe they could, and they just didn't talk about it. Um, <laughs> well, speaking of English wine, I just had the pleasure of trying a wine from a country, or wines from a country that I had never tried before, and that's Turkey. And I saw in the eighth edition here of the World Alice of Wine that it, you actually have a little, uh, couple pages on Turkey. Yeah, very much so, because Turkey, like um, Portugal and Greece, is one of those countries with a, a really interesting array of its own grape varieties with strong personalities, unlike anything produced anywhere else. Uh, it's also got the climate, because although it seems quite low latitude, it's, it's got a lot of mountains, uh-huh. so that compensates for that. And um, uh, it, the only fly in the ointment, of course, is um, the president's poli- anti-alcohol <laughs> policy. Turkish wine was really getting off the ground and starting to gain traction and money was put towards promoting it abroad. Really? And that's all come to a rather grinding halt, unfortunately. That is very unfortunate. Uh, of course, uh, we must have got some, uh, uh, they escaped the blockade over here in Seattle. <laughs> yes. And I was truly impressed. And uh, some of the great grapes were uh, quite, of course, indigenous. And they have a, what, 6,000-year culture down there next to Georgia. Absolutely. Yeah. We're all, it's getting towards that sort of cradle of, of winemaking, where Georgia, Armenia... Mount Ararat, all that kind of thing. 
Yes, I think we. I think that will finally become um, full circle where we appreciate that because of its indigenous heritage and and the history. Uh, let's talk about wine in China. Hey, there's a new place, right? But of course, aren't they competing with some of the most vineyards in the world now? They they do have a heck of a lot of uh, land planted to vines, but it's quite difficult to unpick what proportion of those vines are designed to produce wine rather than fresh grapes or, or uh. raisins. And statistics are quite difficult, reliable statistics, quite difficult to come by. But it does seem as though certainly China has become a hugely important consumer of wine. It's by far Australia's biggest customer, for instance. And the Bordelais have been setting their cap from Bordeaux at uh, China for years now. And they they are starting to produce a few quite decent wines. I've been to China every other year this century. And every time I go, I ask someone whose opinion I trust to lay on a tasting of all the wines they think are best from China. And, Is um, that Shanghai yeah, or Beijing or actually in, only in Hong Kong? I usually go to Shanghai, but oh, wow. I have been to Beijing. And I usually go um, to one wine region each time I go and it's really interesting and both um, but the trouble is that, that most of the wine regions have a major disadvantage they are, most of them are so cold in winter right. that the vines have to be buried and oh. that does the vines no good at all and it weakens them so it's a, a bit of a break on quality and longevity of the vine and then there's other parts of China, the coastal part, which for years has suffered from monsoons right. just at the worst possible time, you know, when the grapes are on the vine and they're yes. supposed to be ripening rather than being shattered by torrential rain. But we, we did go once to um, a region in Yunnan, almost Tibet, overlooked by really? the Himalayas, the most beautiful region where uh, LVMH, you know, the luxury goods company, yes. is making a, a pretty special red wine called Ao Yun. But it's it's not underpriced, as you may imagine. <laughs> well, luxury goods <laughs> never seem to be, uh, perhaps except during Black Friday. Uh, speak with Chances Robinson, who is a master of wine and also a fantastic author, some of the best uh, resources for wine knowledge in the world. Uh, we're talking about wine from England and Turkey and China. Um, is there a country out there you think is going to be something of a, a new, new, exciting trend for uh, the world of wine? Well, I'm certainly very, very keen on, on both Greece and Portugal because they have all this personality, um, fantastic grape varieties of their own. They haven't succumbed to sort of Chardonnay and Cabernet mania. They've, they've <laughs> stood by their own personality. And they're not desperately expensive either. Another country I'd love to see Americans take more interest in in terms of wine is South Africa because there's a whole new wave of ambitious young producers there taking advantage of lots and lots of really old vines uh, that can, can deliver masses of flavor. And again, those wines aren't expensive either. No, it's an, an amazing value. I think uh, the Method Cap Classique uh, style of wine from uh, South Africa is one of the best values and classic styles in the world. I actually had Simon Sig on the show uh, several weeks ago, and uh, I wrote a letter to the Spectator and said, "Hey, you have this great, uh, you know, article about the best sparkling wines in the world, and you you omitted the entire country of South Africa." Anyway, well done. yes, I got published. I got, <laughs> and so then I got a call from Simon Sig because I mentioned them, and so we had a great uh, a talk, and of course a tasting. And I've been to South Africa. I swear, if anyone goes to South Africa, 
South Africa, you'll find that the people are amazing. The the vibrant, the beauty, and the the nature part is also the fantastic. Is, can, I think it's probably the most beautiful wine. It's epic. Producing country, absolutely been, epic. Actually. Yeah, those uh, yeah. vineyards go straight to the mountains, and the mountains go straight up. And of course, uh, there's another side like uh, lunch at Delaire Graff. Perhaps have you had that pleasure? I have. Beautiful <laughs> on the terrace there. Absolutely lovely. I know. They, um, and yeah, they made me feel and like a fact, star. I beg your pardon. Oh, they made me feel like a star. I had I, the yeah, CEO had I'm lunch sure with did. me. Yeah. <laughs> so fun and. Uh, when you think about Portugal, obviously they are sort of reclassifying some of their wines. They've got some different regions, and they're coming out with old vine red blends. And I think, you know, no one's going to be able to pronounce some of those varieties because it'll take a thousand times for them to hear it right, pronounce correctly, to, to remember uh, well, it. Turkish names are even worse. <laughs> they, oh, terrible. Um, but it's interesting that the Portuguese and some Spanish varieties are now being imported into and planted in uh, hot, uh, places like Australia, where they're getting really worried that um, oh, yes. because it's heat, getting so hot, drought. they need varieties used to the heat rather than Cabernet, for instance. Makes sense. And, uh, of course, that also leads us to Bordeaux, where they're pr- planting some uh, different varieties uh, outside, of course, well, the yes, Maidoc. Well, they're, they're, indeed, experimentally, they're planting a few of the Spanish and Portuguese varieties, too. Yeah, so it's... In fact, a- it's probably a very good time to be a Spanish or Portuguese nurseryman. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, we, we are growing... Um, I have a, My family has a vineyard here in the little town of Walla Walla here in Washington. Oh, great. And we grow Tempranillo. And so, very good. Uh, oh, and Great. I should say uh, Monastrell as well. How's that? <laughs> uh, hey, folks, I speak with Jancis Robinson, and we're going to come back and we're going to take a little break and talk about this fantastic new edition. It's the eighth edition of the World Atlas of Wine. And of course, you can find it online. And in that one, the big behemoth we have in our backyard here, I'm sure they can they carry it as well. Uh, but stick around, folks. I have the amazing Jancis Robinson right here on Happy Hour Radio. Tune it in and turn it up. Cruise home with Kirby. The Kirby Wilbur Show, live and local. Weekdays, 3 to 6 p.m., KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, Seattle, welcome back. Time for our third segment. Hope you got something tasty in your glass. I've got a great conversation with Jancis Robinson, who is a master of wine and also author, uh, co-author of several great books. Uh, one is Wine Grapes. Uh, of course, she's written the Oxford Companion to Wine, which is really cool. And, of course, the eighth edition of the World Atlas of Wine, which is here on my deck. Um, it's, it's such a fun compendium. Uh, Jancis, uh, let's talk about the World Atlas of Wine Sure, and I, I'd just like to say how the, the, the rationale for a, an atlas, as far as wine is concerned, is so obvious, because as my co-author and I, Hugh Johnson and I say, wine really is geography in a bottle. You know, it's, it's there, you can tell from the label exactly which spot on the globe produced right. it, and if it's a good wine, then you'll know that whoever made it was trying to get the kind of essence of that place into the bottle. Yeah. Uh, so it's been going, this book, since 1971. And the, uh, the total sales are approaching 5 million copies uh, um, in several, 
in about 14 languages. So it's obviously wow. addressing a need, and, and we're all very proud of it. And each edition, um, I have to kind of slightly rejig and um, take account of new developments. For instance, in this um, new edition, we put Israel and Lebanon on separate pages, which we should have done ages ago. All right. Uh, both of which have very vibrant wine industries, uh, not all that far from Turkey. Uh, Cyprus, again, in that part of the world, has started producing really good table wines. It used to make sort of rather nasty copies of sherry, but now that they're <laughs> building wineries up, up in the mountains near the vineyards, right. they don't have to truck the great uh -huh. midday sun in a great big, you know, rattling around getting all stale. <laughs> and there are really some very nice wines coming out of Cyprus. We've given British Columbia over the border its own special section rather than... Um, getting it lost in the introduction to Canada. Um, we give each of Brazil and Uruguay their own pages rather than losing them in the introduction. Brazil, because people don't think of Brazil at all with wine. I mean, that's quite interesting. No, it's just trying to export a bit. And their speciality, actually, is sparkling wine. In and there's one particular really good producer called Carves. I think you pronounce it Geis, or perhaps not. Um, begins with G, anyway. And, and honestly, the, his wines can give many a champagne a run for their money. Yum. <laughs> and then Uruguay is, is really good. And um, it's the only South American... It's got it's sort of Atlantic influence rather than Pacific influence. And um, the Tanat grape is its strong is its strength, but it makes a wide array of wines. Well, uh, Tanat puts the uh, strong and strength if that's <laughs> your wine grape yes. of country. And it's interesting with the Atlantic influences there, which of course uh, help moderate uh, heat and keep winds and uh, suppress some of the uh, dangers of our vineyard uh, uh, scourges. Uh, so, when you thought about this Atlas of Wine, this was prior to the Comp Oxford Compendium, right? Oxford Companion. No, um, I first undertook the Oxford Companion to Wine in the late 80s, okay. 80s, early 90s. And then, I think because he'd seen that I'd done that, Hugh Johnson, who started the World Atlas of Wine, approached me in 98, uh, when he'd already done the first four editions, and said, help, <laughs> I, I don't feel up to tackling the fifth edition on my own. And so I've been responsible for the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth editions. Well, which is amazing because I know it, it's more than two people. It takes uh, a oh, host yeah. of connectivity. We've got 68, yeah, absolutely. We have 68 consultants around the world, all kind of local experts, commenting on what the seventh edition said and saying what's new and what they think should be added and subtracted and all the rest. And so we're very, very grateful to them. Yes, that's a, what's such an honor to be uh, published along with uh, Hugh Johnson and your name, Chances Robinson. Uh, but of course, to uh, continue a profession that we all love and find passion for is, is sharing knowledge about wine. Uh, because when we come to the table, um, having that delicious moment that Mm, comment is yeah. it, how to explain it and then to have some some great conversation about who those people were how that started and these days it's so easy with the instagram we want it now but to look back six thousand years at some of these places of course portugal with all the history there uh and then you know new places like uruguay which is a new place to us but they've been growing grapes for a couple hundred years right Pro, post phylloxera sure, sure. yes absolutely uh, and the, the, the funny thing is, you know, you might think, oh, the only changes you make will be 
to the to the new world, so outside Europe, but not a bit of it actually. You know, we've we've added new maps in Italy because everyone's mad about Nebbiolo. They're all mad about Barolo and Barbaresco. But um, there's Alto Piemonte, where you know the Gemme, Gattinara, all those things, which can also give you an even more delicate and actually even more historic Nebbiolo. True. So yeah, we've got those a new were, map of that. Those were the wines that were new, more popular. And then added a new map of um, the heartland of the hinterland of Naples, things like Taurasi and, and Fiano Diavolino. Yum. So those are some of my favorite wines, and I was reading, you know, at Soares down there in Campania, uh, and some of the, the sites where they're, you know, we, we think of Italy as coast a lot of times, and or, you know, just food, but this it's a mountainous region, and so there's so very many... Mountainous, di- very mountainous, yeah. 70%, right? It's just... Yeah. Uh, and we think uh, about fast cars, which <laughs> I don't know how that works oh, at gosh. all. I know. I went to Modena for the first time a few weeks ago, and I hadn't realized that all the, you know, the Maserati, the Lamborghini, yes. Ducati, whatever, they're all just around this one town. It's amazing. I uh, i had the pleasure of having the uh, consortium of uh, the real um, bals- vinegar balsamico of Modena on uh, the show, and mm. they sent me some great... Uh, of course, samples of the vinegars. Uh, so you have this eighth edition, and it's, it's it has a few more pages. It, of course, it has some some new sections. And when you think about um, and twenty new maps, twenty new maps, yes. And the maps are so fun because that that puts you. It gives you color. It gives you sort of depth, and and it gives you really a sense of place. Uh, it's fun to read, but the maps really help. And uh, um, are you are you connected with Google Maps at all? Could you find that? Are there some little? I uh, think. Um, I, I believe that the cartographers looked, help, found Google Maps a help in determining the current extent of vineyards because we like to chart. We, we, we chart our notable producers. We chart, um, obviously, all the major geographical features and, and special vineyards, but we like to chart exactly the extent of vineyards and those change over time, of course. So um, I think Google Maps was a real help there, yeah. Oh, it's pretty neat. Uh, and, of course, there's so many more um, organizations that represent different sub-regions of, of uh, Appalachians. I know. I mean, when you think of, of Hugh back in uh, 50 years ago <laughs> trying to put together an atlas of wine when there hardly were any generic He was hustling back then, wine. you know, a younger man with a great eye, passion for a great idea. Wow. Pretty cool. Uh, I think he probably had to sketch out a few maps himself. <laughs> well, a lot of things happen on a cocktail napkin, they say, which is pretty fun. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about when when you're reviewing or uh, uh, going forward with the new edition, when you look at a place like Napa Valley, how how are you sort of seeing that change? Are you talking about more heat units or, or just pricing? Mm. What are some of the things that you sort of review in uh, in your uh, uh Writings on uh, like a place like Napa. Well, we uh, I've completely rewritten the introduction, and part of that is a lot about weather because, gosh, we're all being made aware of weather nowadays, aren't we? And a couple of pages on the changing climate, including a, um, a chart of how picking dates have changed. We chose Chateauneuf du Pape and showed that that grapes are now being picked a whole month earlier really? than they were. Um, well, the sad thing is, I mean, we have to mention fires, you know. Oh, yeah, well, shoot. Not just in, 
in California that fires are becoming such a terrible hazard. Provence, so right? There's the a wine great fire. Of Australia, too. Oh, yeah. Australia, yes. And, you know, it's interesting. We talk about climate change. We talk about CO2 emissions. I've always been curious is how much CO2 fermentation has provided our atmosphere. Well, exactly. I think that's going to be a new preoccupation at capturing, because fermentation, as you know, naturally gives off carbon dioxide. Yeah. And I think there's going to be real pressure on the world's wine industry to capture that carbon and not just let it go off into the atmosphere. I know, and all the fizzy drinks. um, My friend Eric Asimov wrote an interesting article this week for the New York (laughs) Times um, looking at climate change and wine and said that the rather admirable company Jackson Family Estates was really taking a lead on this and did a very thorough audit on the extent to which their particular um, wine activity was, was emitting carbon. And they found the worst culprit responsible for a third of it was the production and transport of glass bottles. Oh, sure. If we all got used to lighter bottles, we would, we would do the planet a favor. Well, this planet needs some favors, and uh, I have the the favor of the pleasure of having Chances Robinson, who is the uh, co-author of the World Atlas of Wine, the eighth edition, along with Hugh Johnson. Now, you have an MW, but is Hugh cre- uh, credited in some fashion quickly? Uh, Hugh? Yes. Is he, is he have a, he's not an no, MW. no. I think he kind of predated the Master of Wine. I love it. I love it. He's emeritus. Hey, folks, stick around. I got just a few more questions for Jancis Robinson right here on Happy Hour Radio. Some say three is a crowd. We say the more the merrier. Markley, Van Camp, and Robbins. Weekdays, 9 to noon. KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back to our fourth and final segment. And I am just tickled pink like Rose. Speak with Chances Robinson all about uh, a little bit of her history and, of course, this great eighth edition of the World Atlas of Wine that she co-authored with Hugh Johnson and a host of some 80-plus or 68, I think, contributors. Is that right? Did I get that number right? 60? Yeah, very good. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. A um, couple questions to sort of end our, uh, our chat. Uh, talk about counterfeiting. I know that's become, uh, obviously, there's shysters like Rudy Kerwarnian, but um, overall, when I was in China, I saw several counterfeits. You know, the lynch barge up on the top shelf of a tiny little place that does not have lynch barge. Yeah. What's your yeah, thought yeah, on yeah. counterfeiting? Where's that going? Well, we on JancisRobinson.com, we ran a big series about uh, Chinese fakery, we called it, with lots and lots of photographs of, uh, you know, labels of things like Chateau Lafitte, spelled L-A-F-E-E-T, <laughs> and the like. Um, it, no, it's been absolutely rife, and it's been a nightmare that the, the Bordeaux producers have been trying to sort out. I think it's getting slightly better. There have been some high-profile prosecutions. But, of course, when you're selling wine into a market that's mad about wine but doesn't really know anything about wine, I suppose it's, it's ripe for, for fakery. Yes, and I remember uh, going to Macau for a quick little visit, and uh, I could not believe how much Rishborg was, <laughs> or DRC was available in these cabinets, like and at Crazy, the prices. I know, yeah. I, but that's a different uh, elite uh, revenue stream that I haven't seen yet. But um, so fun. What do you see happening with wine labels? I know that are we talking? Are they going to have ingredient labels on here at some point, or calories? I'd like and things? to see that. I, I think there's no logic to requiring food manufacturers 
years to give every single tiny little ingredient and not wine people. Uh, and it would really sort, it would help us sort out the good guys from the bad, I think. So I'd, I'd love to see ingredient labeling. At the moment, it's not mandatory. And the only people I know who do it are people like Ridge Vineyards in California, who are very good guys and tell you if the grapes got so ripe, they felt the wine would taste better if they added a bit of water. And you can read that on the back label. Oh, so fun. I know that the uh, Western Division sales directors here in the Seattle area, we just connected recently. So I'm excited about that. I'll have her on. We'll talk about that, which is really cool. Looking at the wine industry as a whole, um, I mean, wine coolers were a big part of our drinking culture in America back in the 80s, I think. And um, what do you see in the future as, as being sort of a trend? Is it different packaging or... It should be different packaging because I I don't see that there's really any need for cheap wine to be put into those carbon-guzzling, expensive, fragile, uh, heavy packages called bottles. Um, But a lot of more, everyone's investing in low alcohol and no alcohol alternatives to wine because so many people are trying to cut down their consumption of alcohol. And is that due partly because of this, the natural affinity for getting grapes riper and pushing the envelope for, or perhaps chasing scores from certain critics? I think that's, that era is well over. Um, I just get feedback from all over the world that people want to make more refreshing, transparent wines, not high in alcohol, not heavily oaked. Um, and I hope that the point scoring thing has gone but because it ended up with a whole load of wines that were all very similar and many of them not very friendly to drink with food very true uh interesting enough you talk about um you know lighter styles fresher less oak i wonder what australian shiraz might be here in the future yeah well i've just come back from australia and uh, it's quite significant how many people are labeling their wine syrah and making a fresher style ah. and 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 trying to emulate a sort of more French kind of Syrah rather than the classic, you know, great big turbocharged Barossa Shiraz. (laughs) Well, here in Washington, of course, ever since the Spectator put the new uh, homeland for Syrah or the the Wunderland, um, Washington's been making Syrah. We have a new uh, uh, sub-AVA called The Rocks. Have you ever had a wine from Mm -hmm. The Rocks District yet? I haven't yet. Unfortunately, we don't get nearly enough Washington wine in in the UK, but um, one can but hope. I'll be telling the Washington Wine Commission to make sure we get a special box for you. Uh, Finally, (laughs) let's talk about, uh, you have, again, the JancisRobinson.com is a website that has tasting notes, and you have a glassware, too, you mentioned. I have. I've just designed a beautiful, beautiful glass, which is beautifully thin, uh, handmade, but dishwasher safe, because I can't be doing with spending hours uh, cleaning. And of course, you always break the glasses when you're hand washing them. Um, and it's it's very gorgeous, and it's abs- one glass for every single sort of wine, white, red, sparkling, strong, sweet, whatever. And it's working beautifully. It's got a huge, huge following, being um, distributed in the U.S. by Skernick. You know, there's the family-owned... Yes. Fine wine import. Of course. Yeah. So fun. Yeah. And that's uh, at so your very, website? I'm proud of it. Just been launching it uh, in uh, around the world, and it's going down a bomb. Congra- <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> and that's at jancisrobinson.com. 
Thank you. All right, Chances, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. I wish you the best for the holiday season, uh, and I look forward Thank to you. having a chance to meet you perhaps at Vin Expo or another Lovely. opportunity sometime. Great. Uh, Thank you so much, Christopher. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, folks, that's Chances Robinson, and uh, well, I'm still tickled pink. Um, I'm blushing and having a great time, and I can't wait to dive into this beautiful eighth edition of the World Atlas of Wine. Hey, folks, remember, we have a website, too. It's called happyhourradio.net, and when you're out and about, remember... Life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers!